Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I'm David Lim. It is Tuesday, the 13th of October. In today's podcast, Professor Malcolm Hopwood discusses the impact of COVID-19, the lockdown, and the anticipated gradual drawn out economic recovery on mental health. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. In today's podcast, I will be speaking with Professor Malcolm Hopwood. Professor Hopwood, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Hello, I'm Professor Mel Hopwood and I'm a Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Melbourne and the head of the Professorial Psychiatry Unit at Albert Road Clinic here in Melbourne. It's very appropriate to be talking about this topic coming from Melbourne, which sadly is very much Australia's home of COVID. Now, you've just segued beautifully to the first question. Now, having come out of a pandemic lockdown, and even as we were heading into it, as, as you see the crisis building and then the gradual lockdown, the lockdown itself, what sorts of mental health stressors and issues do you think was happening during that time? I think there are really a range of issues that are affecting people. There's been, of course, a great focus on the direct impact of COVID infection on people's mental health, with some data suggesting, for example, that following COVID, unsurprisingly, there are prolonged periods of fatigue and perhaps mood and anxiety changes. I think we'll learn a lot more over time in that regard. The picture's still evolving. We have got some reasonable data following SARS and MERS from other parts of the world that showed there was an increase in common mental health problems like depression and anxiety in people who had those infections. And in many ways, really, that's not at all a surprise. Of course, most people in the community won't get COVID. So the impacts for them are more likely to be related to anxiety about getting COVID, the psychosocial impact of quarantine and isolation, and possibly for an enduring period of time, the mental health consequences of the economic impact. And look, each of those has some predictable elements to it, doesn't it? So if we take the economic impact first, we've known for many decades that anytime there is a major economic downturn, there is an increase in common mental health problems. Those with the more serious mental health problems like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, are at higher risk of relapse, often finding treatment costs prohibitive. And sadly, as, as attracted some recent publicity with an oath that an economic downturn 
can be associated with an increase in the suicide rate. And ultimately, I think the biggest impact on the mental health of the community may well be around economics. Isolation is tough. Um, and I don't think anyone who's listening probably needs me to expand on that terribly much. It is interesting that actually we have very little data about the psychological impact of quarantine. Just intuitively, we know it's tough. We do have some data about what helps people when they're required to isolate and restrict their life. And most of it's not surprising. Good information, consistent information from authority figures and senior health figures. Being able to see light at the end of the tunnel and being able to consistently feel part of an effort that's about dealing with a major health problem. And I think as we look across the globe, it's really interesting to see how we think different countries have done in that regard. So in sum, there's a range of factors that can impact upon mental health as a result of our current pandemic situation. Some of them are about COVID itself, and many of them are about the penumbra, if you like, that surrounds it. And unfortunately, some of them are probably going to be with us for quite a while. And what would you think would be around for a while there, Mel? Well, I think in particular, the, the, the economic impact one assumes is going to take us a while to recover from. I certainly don't want to pretend to have any economic qualifications to predict, but certainly from a Victorian perspective, there's clearly going to be quite a lag before our economy recovers, particularly as some of the government supports come off over time, some of the government financial supports. And that's just tough for people. And as I said before, economic downturns are associated with an increased risk of depression. That's through business failure or personal debt. They are associated with increased rates of anxiety. And I think the one that everyone forgets is substance abuse. So I think we need to be prepared for an increase in presentations, sometimes hidden, related to things like alcohol abuse. There's also been a lot of publicity, hasn't there, about the risks of other psychosocial consequences like domestic violence. And mm. you know, often they are clearly deleterious to mental health as well. Mel, I think you touched on some very important issues that, um, that will surface at the general practice, but unless we actively explore and look for them, we may not find them. Yes, it's so true, isn't it? We, we all know from both our experience and the data that even with the better uh, situation around public education with things like depression and anxiety and some reduction in stigma. Many patients don't present or even if they come to see us, they don't always talk about their mental health symptoms. And many of my GP colleagues will talk about the patient who comes to see them for something else and with about 30 seconds left to go in the consult will bring up their problems with depression and anxiety, which can be really difficult. I think it's certainly a time we need heightened awareness of the need to look for these things. There's been a bit of discussion, of course, about whether we should routinely screen all patients presenting to primary care for depression and anxiety. And interestingly, the US um, Preventative Health Task Force recommended mandatory screening for depression for all patients who present to primary care. And that was before COVID. Mm -hmm. So it's probably more likely now. 
they did add a rider that you should only do that if you're then in a position to respond well. I'd like to think in Australia we do have the resource to respond, but that's an interesting debate. Uh, certainly the increased funding for psychology sessions will help in those places where psychology is readily available. I think at the end of the day, though, there's no substitute for us being aware of the issue as doctors. I still think the most effective way of picking up depression and anxiety is if you get asked about it by your doctor who then responds in an appropriate way. And really, it should become part of our verbal health screening for every new patient. I think that's such an important bit of advice, um, Mel. I, I just want to bring up a slightly different angle here in, in the sense that many people have been talking up uh, a vaccine. You always, almost get a feeling a vaccine is going to be around the corner and that somehow it's a silver bullet, it's going to be 100% effective and life goes back to the old normal. However, in my conversations with many virologists and people who are in the vaccine fields, Mel, the feeling is that the time, they might have got the timeline wrong. It's not going to be quick. And even if it was around, it may not be that efficacious. And that there is concern that we're talking up people's hopes only to crush them. So I put to you, Mel, what would happen in a situation like that? It's a very interesting question. Certainly, uh, in my conversations with virologists and uh, the public health experts, they, they too are expressing caution about the vaccine story. And history would suggest producing effective vaccines is not a simple task. I think in our public health messaging, there's a great challenge for our leaders that it's a difficult thing to discuss measures like social distancing, hand hygiene, restrictions like we've had a curfew in Victoria, for example. They're not easy things to tell people about, but in living with this pandemic, they're the appropriate things to be talking about. It's okay to discuss a vaccine and development of new treatments, but as you say, they're not guaranteed and we are running the risk of creating poor outcomes in terms of people's mental health. So if people are banking on a vaccine that's not guaranteed and it doesn't come anytime soon, dare I say it, even before the US election, then we're going to let them down psychologically and they're not going to be happy with us. And I think we risk two things. I've certainly been impressed in Australia that the overall level of public obedience of restrictions due to COVID, you'd have to say has been pretty good. We've had a lot of publicity about those people who have broken the rules, but most people have stuck with it, I think, remarkably well. But if they feel they're being misinformed or led down a garden path, if I can use that phrase, disenchantment will spread. And I think that's a real risk. Is it also a risk in terms of them feeling increasingly hopeless, fearful, and then more at risk of things like depression and anxiety? Yes, I think that's possibly so. And, and situations such as our current one, the public health messaging from both our health and political leaders 
is incredibly important. I might say, having commented about the global situation, that overall, I do feel we've been relatively well served in that regard by Australia. People will have their own opinions about these things. I, I respect that. But I have to say, I think our leaders have generally done a pretty good job of telling things pretty straight, including the less palatable bits. I must have to agree with you. I think that uh, there was some confusing messaging in the beginning. Masks, no masks, masks don't work. Oh, maybe you should mask. Oh, by the way, masks are mandatory. So there, there was some pretty lousy messaging that went on early about certain things. But if you looked at the outcome in Australia, you've got to say of all the countries in the world, we are very blessed to be here. And we're in a very good space. Yes, I agree. Now, I just want to harp on this economic thing for a while because it's, as you said, going to be likely the one that hangs around the longest. Just to compound all these matters, the rest of the world's economy isn't looking so hot either. And, um, and the problem with that is that it means that the recovery uh, may actually not be a V-shaped at all uh, and, and a very very gradual reverse tick one. So I, I guess my question to you, Mel, is how do countries and communities cope under duress for long periods of time where the wealth that one has been used to is probably no longer there and not there for a long time? The overseas holiday that you always go on is a dream. Do you think it has the chance of fracturing society or is there just that chance that hardships actually bring people together? Hardships certainly can bring communities together, perhaps for a period of time. So I think societal cohesion so far during the pandemic in Australia has been pretty good. Mm. And we've not seen mass outbreaks of disquiet. But once the risk due to the pandemic is gone and we're left with the economic aftermath, that can become more challenging. As I said before, every economic downturn in the past, most recently the GFC globally, of course, we have quite good data from a number of countries about the negative impact on mental health, perhaps most tightly shown in relation to national suicide rates. There was a projection, I'm sure um, many of your listeners will be aware of, um, coming out of the Brain and Mind Institute in Sydney, led by Ian Hickey, that looked at the likelihood of an increased risk of suicide, depending upon the level of reduction in gross domestic product. And there's a pretty tight correlation with something like a doubling of the suicide rate if we were to have a more than 10% GDP fall. Mm. Now, that's a pretty dramatic fall in GDP, it needs to be said. And I say that as a non-economist, obviously. But there is that clear link. Um, and of course, beyond the suicide rate, we're talking about personal suffering with disorders like depression and anxiety more broadly. So I think that is a real phenomenon. I guess that perhaps part of the question is, well, what can we do at a community and individual level that might help our resilience mm. in the face of that threat? 
and I think that's an intriguing question and probably less well studied than is ideal. We've seen some debate at the minute about the retention of economic support to those who are, for example, unemployed and what level that support should be at. And one of the questions that could arise out of that is how clear is the link between specific individual economic circumstance and things like depression? And the answer is there is a clear link. Now, also implied in your question is, well, is there an absolute level of that? For some of us, it's as much about our perception of the economic situation, isn't it? I used to be able to do X, Y, and Z, be able to go out for dinner regularly or you know, watch whatever I wanted on the internet, and now I can't, even though I'm not starving or homeless. It's difficult to actually get good data about this. But we do know from clinical experience that absolute poverty clearly does correlate with a higher risk of depression. But equally for the individual who previously did well and let's say, for example, ran their own business, the loss of that business can be devastating and a trigger for an episode of depression. So I think it affects us all. It is interesting, and it's probably more conjectural than evidence-based, about how does the response of our leadership to the economic crisis play out in terms of our response? So if they play nice and actually collaborate in discussing effective ways to deal with the difficulties, will that facilitate that sense of working together as a community in the face of tension? I personally think there is something in that. Whereas if we're fractured and divided, does that increase risk? I think that might be so. Now, one of the difficulties in getting data about that is how do you measure the level of a society's divisions? It's not an easy thing to do, probably. But there is certainly some sense that the more we feel like we're all working together under difficult circumstances, that will help. Mel, I think without naming too many countries, looking across the Atlantic would tell us how leaderships divide and what happens to the ordinary citizens. As I said to you earlier, I'm just so thankful I'm in Australia. Indeed, indeed. So there are two sets of issues that we want to deal with with uh, SGPs. Issues that as we come out of the lockdowns, what are GPs likely to encounter how do we meet it and deal with it very quickly? And in the longer term, we've already mentioned some of those things, uh, talking about depression, but especially of resilience. Uh, what is our role uh, in both coming out of lockdowns and in terms of dealing with the ongoing rolling effects of economic downturns? I think we're likely to see an increase in the common mental health problems as the main challenge. So the depression, the anxiety, uh, the substance abuse. I think in meeting that challenge, the question is how to do that effectively as we open up our style of practice again. Mm. I think it is likely that we're going to see the use of telehealth continue as part of our armamentarium. In what form and how it's funded, I'm not yet sure. We've seen an extension to the COVID items, but I would predict there's a high likelihood that 
patient pressure will result in them continuing to be available to us. If that's so, I think that opens up some other interesting tools that might be of value to us, like online educational material that we can refer to a little more readily, mm-hmm. even some online therapies through things like the Commonwealth Mental Health Portal. And of course, as mentioned before, we've got the extra psychologist sessions that are accessible. Now, I know many of your colleagues will say, well, that depends if you're in an area where you've got access to psychologists that you know, you've got a good working relationship with. And that does vary. I accept that. I'd like to see from the psychiatry point of view, greater support to you through utilization of one-off assessment items. I know many of our, my GP colleagues say, Mel, I'd so often like to be able to contact a psychiatrist, sometimes just to get advice over the phone or just to get a one-off. Am I doing the right thing here? Or what do you think I should do now? And we know from the Medicare data that's been growing and I predict it will grow further. And I would think that's a good thing. I think that increased demand will continue for some time, as you described, with the slow economic recovery, or what we assume will be a slow economic recovery. So vigilance will need to stay high. I'm sure for many GPs, they would say to me, look, Mal, even before COVID, common mental health problems were amongst the commonest reasons people were coming to see me. Mm. So some of this is not brand new. They might say to me, well, should my treatment really be different? And and the answer is fundamentally no. We do need to be aware that circumstances that are relevant to people's depression may change. So retaining awareness where possible of things like what economic supports are available for people, sometimes that can be a really important intervention, can't it? Mm. If we can help you get this economic support and that relieves a bit of pressure, that could be a key intervention. So you'll only be able to do that if you know what they are and how the person can access them. So that sort of cultural knowledge, I think, is important. But does our use of antidepressants, for example, change? Not fundamentally. I would comment about the lifestyle issues in the treatment of depression. So certainly in Victoria, where we've had all these restrictions, do I think for many people, things like exercise and diet and perhaps a little bit of extra drinking might have gone in the wrong direction. I think that's very likely. (laughs) So attending to those things too, encouraging people to re-engage with good diet, regular exercise, cut back a bit on the alcohol and the bad food, that, that will never go astray. And is there any value in looking at the fact that things will eventually improve, that that there is eventually going to be light at the end of the tunnel? Well, I always think so. And perhaps it's a, sometimes these things are at a personal philosophical level, aren't they? But history would say to us that eventually it is likely that we will get on top of this. And I say that not wishing to sound like we're going to get on top of it next week, Mm. but we will. And economies do recover. I am optimistic about that. Sometimes when you're feeling particularly depressed or anxious, it can be very hard to see the possibility of a positive future. And we always have a role in maintaining hope. 
Mel, I've really, really appreciated the, um, both the sensitivity and the width and depth of your uh, comments. They've been very valuable to us as GPs. Um, before we leave you, um, is there any other final words you might like to share with our listeners? Well, I think, David, I'd just like to reinforce that message to your listeners about the importance of vigilance. We will, we know in our communities that rates of depression and anxiety are going to increase. So as publicly responsible physicians, part of our job is to look for those problems, just as we would for a growth in diabetes, hypertension, or any other major health problem. Keep your eyes open, and when you see it, treat it aggressively. Well, I think that's an incredibly powerful message and an important one. I thank you for the time you've given us. Thank you, David. It's been a real joy and pleasure speaking with you, Mel. I wish you a good day. All the best. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.